0: Today's guest is my friend Matt Gersper, and when it comes to being happy, experience is a great teacher, and Matt has a deep life experience to draw from. Enjoy the show.
1: My life is my message, and I thought that's that's the way I want to be a teacher. That's the way I want to be a man. That's the way I want to be a parent. Is I want to show you with my life, with what I do, not with what I tell you, not with what you know. All that's nonsense. What do I do with my life? And so, as a man, I want to you know carry luggage for my for my wife. Um, I want to carry luggage for my daughters. I want to you know do. I want to open up the jars, right? Um, I want to stay strong so I can keep opening up the jars. I want to do manly things for myself, but also for others. That, that's how I describe it. But the main thing is, live your life in such a way that your actions lift other people just by the fact that you're doing those actions.
0: Welcome to the Strong Man Podcast with Dr. Rimka, one mom's quest to support her son through his rites of passage and becoming what I hope is a man of courage, resilience, and compassion in a world seemingly gone mad. All right, everybody. So here I have a new friend of mine, Matt Gersper. And it's really, really fascinating. Matt, we were just talking before we got started about how you and I don't actually know each other very well. Like, I don't know details of your life um, incredibly well, but we connected at a short weekend kind of mastermind summit with a bunch of entrepreneurs. Almost all of us were doctors or clinicians and you were one of the outliers that is not. And, um, but we kind of connected and everybody, my friends were, I don't know if they were teasing you, but they were teasing me that you and I kind of met and it was a little kismet twin flame, bizarre thing. They're like, y'all should just go get a room because you mm-hmm. seem to like be <laughs> on the same wavelength of stuff. And I found that to be pretty interesting. And there were things about you that I ended up saying to myself, I was like, oh yeah, he's, he learned that more than me. I'm going to do what Matt does next time. Like, I love that he did this or I love that he did that. And You know, we drove a couple times and just little pieces of information and nuggets you would drop. I thought to myself when I, at this conference, you know, little mastermind we were on, when you helped me actually title this podcast, Mm -hmm. you know, you are the guy that gave me the title, pretty, pretty simple, the strong man podcast came from you and you gave me some energy around it. I don't know, like some confidence, some energy, like it was very clear with the way you reflected back to me what I was saying, that it was a solid idea and it's what I needed to do. And my heart as a mother just kind of was like, yeah. So there was this energy you gave me as a man. And in that room, I I felt really surrounded with the strength of the kind of men that I wanna be surrounded by. I feel safe with, I feel supported by. I don't ever feel criticized, demeaned, mansplained in any way. I don't feel competition, you know? And there's like a harmonization and a partnership, right? I think we're all looking for as men and women. And I explained that the point of this is to talk with the men like you that I look at and I, I see an attribute that I would like my son to reflect one day into the world. So kind of for you with me, it came up this entrepreneurial spirit you're a strong entrepreneur that was very evident and you have retreats and you're a published author and you have a podcast and you speak and your message of happy living was in such a real concrete way where there could be strength and success and going after you want getting what you want and it and being happy though at the same time without it costing you relationships and people in your life right because i think sometimes that message for men in particular gets really Mm -hmm. misconstrued. so i would love you to say who you are to anybody who's listening and actually to me like you know i'm not going to read that bio it was a really fun little bio um but that's how i think of you is this this very successful entrepreneur who's found a way to navigate to to deal with marriage and becoming a father and I want to get, more, get to know more about you in that regard and get some advice from you. But first, let everybody know who you are, what you stand for in the world.
1: Well, who I am is just Matt Burster. Um, what I stand for in the world these days is trying to really unlearn the first half of my life, where I was a hard charger, where business came first, everything else was second. Um, just to give you a little bit of how crazy I was, uh, I, I was a football player in high school and college, and I signed three different professional contracts to go pro, and I got cut with each of them. But the last one um, was in January of of 1985, rather, and my first wife was pregnant with our first kid that was supposed to be born in March. And I got on a plane in January and I said, I'll see you in, in summer. So it was so important. I didn't have the the mindset to think that I could come home, fly home, <laughs> and see my child be born. No, I was gonna be playing football. And so the first half of my life really was was driven by ambition. And I was clever enough to still be, you know, kind and all that type of stuff, but everything. In one way or another, point it back to me. So I'll give you an example. If I was at a conference for my company and there was a charity, I might buy a bunch of raffle tickets for the charity and then I hand them out to my customers. So I was doing a, a kind donation, but it's because I wanted my company to be reflected positively. So these days I'm trying to flip that and I'm trying to, can I really just do things for the purpose of helping other people? I was lucky enough that I, if I'm smart, I don't have to make money. I like to. It's a, it's a reflection that my business is working. If it's making money, I don't have to. So I really do have the opportunity that I can say, okay, I can just be a real honest to goodness giver. And then I write my first book and I want to sell lots of books. And I flip right back into that. Well, wait a second. You can't want to sell lots of books. <laughs> you have to try to help other people. So I want to find lots of readers. You know, I love, I love what you're doing with this single moms, single parenting is brutal.
0: Yeah,
1: Um, I'm sure I don't have to tell you, I've not experienced it, but I've married a single mom and I know what she was doing. And so I have this, I don't have much empathy in general. That's one of my big weaknesses, but I have a lot of empathy for single parents because it's a brutal job to do. And so when you came up with this idea, I thought, wow, this is really, this is great because I haven't heard anything like it, first of all. And second of all, what you said to me that that I was so excited about is you want to expe- you want your son to experience characteristics that you wish he would take on that you can't give him as a as a as a mother right and so I love that so I don't know what that has to do with me and how I got there but um, well what I'm trying to do is give back so okay. I'm happy that you have me on here that's where I was going and if there's anything that we can cover today that that's one person picks up and says, oh, that's, that's interesting. And that might help me improve my life a little bit. Right. That's where I'm trying to get to Stephanie is that should be enough. Just one person, not a million, not a billion. Exactly. This has to be the biggest, most successful show in the world. No. If we can actually reach one person today, yeah. that'd be just a lovely thing. Right.
0: I've been um, part of the journey is, you know, my son is 15. And uh, about 12, he ended up getting really sick with uh, a brain, let's we'll just keep it real simple, a brain inflammatory disorder. And it led to an onslaught of bizarre behavioral uh, issues. So brain health leads to you know mental health. If the, as sound as the brain is, that's, that's where mental health comes from and that's what I deal with. And so as I watched it right before my eyes, like my son become just like the patients that people bring to me, it was a very different um space like emotionally what you know like i could be very positive and encouraging and i mean stood for hope and we will absolute we will handle this when any mother was crying before me about her son or her daughter right now that it was on me and i was seeing it the fear right that that swept over me because of my attachment to this is my child that is suddenly plagued with anxiety that suddenly plagued with a a neurological tick that suddenly can't function and is obsessive compulsive Um, was that he became dysfunctional and I had to pull him out of school and homeschool him for a while and then seek partial hospitalization treatment and go through all biomedical things flying him to Chicago back and forth for a specialist, Washington, D.C. for a specialist, then Nashville. So, I kept moving and flying and traveling and okay, I will find the best. I'll we'll find the best. Cause I do know more than your average mom. Let's say about the brain and how to go about this, but it was still a very kind of earth shattering moment as a clinician that brought me back to that basal moment of at the end of the day, I'm just a mom mm-hmm. that the doctor part is, I, I don't know what to do with all of this at the same time and treating your own child you know, you could begin to kind of medicalize them. And it would like, that's not what you want to do. You know, you don't want to turn that, that relationship into the doctor patient and even sees me that way. Now, now everything's got to be passed through me. Like, you does not even trust the doctor. Like, well, okay, what does my mom say? What do you say? What should I do? What should I, You know? So it really brought me to my knees and brought me into a whole new world of being able to ask questions in a, in a different way. And I was watching this space and reading more and more things about also the rites of passage and knowing that now he's 15 and understanding wow we have this neurological problem that i'm balancing with special needs issues at times but then also navigating there's just real differences in our relationship Mm -hmm. from a seven six-year-old boy and a seven-year-old boy to a 12-year-old boy to a 13-year-old boy to now a 15-year-old boy you know, and he adores me and I adore him and we are tight and all of that, but there's a lot to navigate, uh, as a woman Mm -hmm. to say, and I don't think a lot of, a lot of my patients don't know this, I have to tell the moms, uh, here's the thing. He needs men. Like Mm -hmm. there are a lot of things you and I are not designed to teach him. We're not supposed to. Okay. I, I don't know what it's like to grow up a boy. I don't know what it's like to have a penis and testicles hanging between my legs and the, the some of the things he tells me about just in terms of sitting on a toilet and where he's like mom there's not enough room for my penis and my balls you see these round ones i need the. i mean this whole explanation he was explaining to me i'm like i looked at him he's like these are so stupid like, and this is his bathroom mm-hmm. and i just kind of oh. like right I would have known because that's why sometimes there's pee on the floor, mom, because there's no room for my penis. I have to put it down and it might hurt and get pushed in there or I just put it up and I sit it on top. I was like...
1: I've been a man my whole life and I'm still having a hard time following what he's doing in there.
0: (laughs) Right? Okay. Because I'm like, honey, why can't it all fit? I don't understand. He's like, there's not enough room for me. I don't know. Maybe he's trying to tell me something about, you know... (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) So... So it was kind of through that, right? And I haven't had enough encounters with what I consider very weak men Mm. that uh, quite frankly repulse me almost viscerally. Mm. And I think there's just maybe some primal genetic drive you know, just the way we are attracted to certain body shapes and red lips and men, and you know like so whether not always sexual just knowing what seems healthy what seems stable what seems that's a safe one to be around and that one's not safe to be around right that's right yep so that's what i'm trying to acquire and i see there's a lot of influence of weakness mm-hmm. um in culture so yeah. and there's these
1: books i'm reading like one book we're, i read we're cultivating the weakness
0: yeah, so and talk about men, that. And what you men see.
1: need to be more like women and women need to be more like men. No, that's not how it's supposed to be.
0: Tell me more about that. So you grew up a boy. Tell me, I want to hear about your childhood a little bit. Like any brothers and sisters? Yeah. And then where were you in that rank?
1: Okay, uh, well, it's, uh, I have an older brother and then I had a brother that was um, died at birth three years after my older brother. I was a replacement kid. So actually, my name, Matthew Brian Gersper, was Jeffrey's name, my my older brother that died. And my parents didn't want to bury the name. Uh So they gave me his name, and they changed, they changed him to Jeffrey. And um, so then after me, uh, my sister is three years younger than me, and then a brother two years after that. So we're uh, four years, three years and two years, about 10 years, separate top to bottom. And so, I, I was the second oldest, and I was always a little, very tiny kid. Um, when I started high school, I was very athletic, I was very small. When I started high school, I was five foot two, 100 pounds. Wow. I, I can remember being in my first football team meeting with freshman varsity and junior varsity. Everybody was there, and I asked a question, and my voice cracked, that coach! And you know, it's like, oh my God, <laughs> talk about embarrassing. So I started out just really small, and therefore I had to be really aggressive if I was gonna be, be seen. And so that really served me that, you know, I had to be twice as good as most of my friends because they were just bigger and stronger. And so I think that really propelled me in sports. Um, in my younger years, probably from fifth grade to college, sports was really the only thing I cared about. I did school and I did it pretty well because I'm, I'm pretty smart, naturally. It was a gift that was given, um, but I had to do school in order to do sports. Uh. So that's it. Get, take care of school. And when that's done, I could go out and I could play. And so that really was most of my, most of my life was involved in one sport after another and, and playing sports when, when we weren't organized, you know, with my friends, pick up basketball games. And uh, we used to play a game where we would throw football and we'd dive to try to catch it in the juniper bushes. On my street, (laughs) so we just did crazy stuff. One of my friends was a his his dad was a high school principal, and so he had he had old um, uh, high jumping equipment in his backyard. So I used to be able to go down to my friend Adam's house, and me and him and his brothers would practice high jumping all day long. And lo and behold, I became a I qualified for the junior Olympics in high jumping in the eighth grade. And so it just, I just had a great, great young life of uh, playing sports with a small group of friends and, and achieving, you know, levels all the way up. As cool. it seemed, the older I got, the better I got relative to th- those around me. And so I figured by the time I graduated at college and I got to go to try the pros, I was going to be the best ever. And of course, I got cut three times in a row, and, and uh, that ended my career. Okay, but
0: there's a lot there. So first of all, what decade it did, did, was were this going on? Like when you were a kid.
1: So I was born in '61. So most of you know, my growing up years were '70s, late '60s, '70s. Okay. '70s was a big year. Small town or city? Uh, it's it's outside Berkeley, California, in northern northern California, a little town called Walnut Creek. So a small town. Okay. Um, bigger now, but it was. And back in California, that was like the best school system in the entire nation. This was the good California, you know, four yeah. Years, yeah. years, ago. it was an awesome place to live. Yeah. yeah.
0: So a couple things that, ma- so one, it makes me think of, you know, in terms of the way it is today. So you had, you know, brothers and sisters. I did too. I'm the youngest of four and I was born in 73 and the neighborhood, there were tons of kids and mm-hmm. kids were out and we were out playing. My yep. son is an only child. And there are no kids in the street. In fact, I had to like encourage him to start knocking on some doors to try and get kids out. And some of the kids parents just, they don't, they're not allowed to come out. They're just doing homework all the time. And then even when he found a couple, then he kind of liked them enough. He finally would come on and say, mom, all we do is play video games. Mm -hmm. Um, what and he's like he'll like a little video game but it was like it's the tv is on and it's video games and i this they won't play any games like he can't even get them to play board games very much like you would have to talk him in to being able to play a board game much less coming outside and i find his friends parents his mother their mothers in general who are in charge they don't let their boys like bike ride like on streets and stuff like I do like go to the restaurant go get you know whatever like he can do that and and when they come over the parents are like they're not allowed to do that like they they ha- I have to assure them I'll keep them at the house and watch them <laughs> I'm, I'm not kidding oh, I, know, I know so so there's that and then there, so what also made me come up wonder is what and I know a lot of stuff for just born with, but hundred, five foot two and a hundred pounds. When I entered freshman year of high school, I was, I think five, six or something, yeah. or five, seven, I became five 11. Right. So girls are a little, I was already a size 11 shoe in, yeah. in eighth grade. Right. So we're taller. We grow more. I was a hundred, I was 98 pounds actually. So yeah. you and I were pretty similar. I was just real gangly. What would make you think, Oh, that's okay. Like you, you didn't say I'm too small. I can't do it. It's like, oh, I can do it. I'm just, no. and I'll, I'll do you guys. What, what do you think that was? And, and if you have any way that you've ever learned how you would teach that quality.
1: Yeah. See, I got goosebumps just thinking of it. Um, a couple of things that, that gave me that confidence. My parents always, for as long as I could remember, would tell me you could do anything you want, you can have anything you want if you're willing to work hard enough for it. So you know, I'm a little tiny kid. You know, I want to be a, a high, high jumping champion. You can do that. You have to work really hard. Um, I want to be a professional football player. I wrote in my fifth grade essay about you know becoming a Cincinnati Bengal and playing in the NFL for 10 years and retiring and raising chickens on a farm or some crazy <laughs> thing. So I always I always dreamed big. And my parents always said, yes, you can do that if you're willing to work hard enough for it. So I got a couple of things out of that. One was, um, it's not impossible, right? My mom and dad think I could become a professional football player if I'm willing to work hard enough for it. So I worked harder than anybody that I knew, yeah. always. I never knew anybody that, that out-trained me until I started reading about you know some icons like Jerry Rice. He's a, just a beast, I could never train like he did. But that was, that was my workaround. I'm going to outwork you. And therefore, when I come up against you, I know I've done more work than you've done and I'm going to get you. So that instilled confidence in me. The second thing, and probably one of the, the biggest um, where the goosebumps come, I I got, I was lucky enough that my parents supported me also. And so when I wanted to go to football camps in the summer, that cost a lot of money and we didn't have a lot of money, but my parents supported me. When I was doing high jumping and we didn't have a lot of money, they would take me on travel trips and, and spend money to support my efforts. And so I was up at one of these football camps and they bring in pros to talk to the kids and, and then you practice and you, it's about a week long that you're up there. And I met this guy named Fred Blitnikoff, who was a, I think he's, he might be a hall of famer, but he was definitely um, a wide receiver for the, for the Oakland Raiders at the time, and I was an Oakland Raider fan. And so I knew who Fred Bolitnikoff was and I could see him on TV. And then I got to meet Fred Bolitnikov in person. And he was small, he wasn't very fast. He mm-hmm. smoked cigarettes. And I was looking at this guy and I was probably sophomore, or junior in high school. And I said, oh yeah, I can be a pro. If he can be a pro, I can be a pro. So that had to do with access, right? Mm-hmm. If you have access and you can see something, that's I think why, so that's one of the reasons that so many pros have kids that go into pros. Yeah, They've taken away the the barrier of impossibility. It's not just the genes, It's most of it's here. Of course I can be a pro. My dad played pro ball for 10 years. So you know what, that makes sense. But if you're, I wrote about this in my book, Turn the Inspiration to Action, one of my chapters is about football. At the time I had really good neighbor friends. We were next door neighbors for a while. And then we were across the town neighbors. And they, when, when I was young, I played with their, with their children all the time. And I always said I wanted to be a pro football player. And As long as I can remember, I was, you know, fourth grade, fifth grade. And they all thought it was cute. And they followed my career because we were friends. We were kind of like family together, really. And by the time I got up to like my junior year in high school, I kept saying, I'm going to be a pro ball player. And I was a, almost a straight A student and, and should be a good you know, middle-class white boy and go to college and go to work for a career. That's what my neighbors thought. And no, I was going to play football. So one day, they actually risked their friendship. They came over to my parents' house. I wasn't, I didn't know what they're, I didn't know about it. And they sat my parents down. They said, you got to stop encouraging that boy. He's not going to be a pro football player. You're just setting him up for a big failure. You better tell him to grow up and to, you know, be... Do what he's actually capable of doing, yeah. And that was, you know, as I wrote about it, I thought about it. That was really an act of love, from their perspective. Sure, sure. that's a horrible perspective. Yeah, it, and, it comes from their but, limited, fear-based, you know. Yeah, parents
0: and, clearly didn't have that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So how many dreams are are killed because of that? Yeah. And so what I take out of this, and what I'm learning in, in my second half of my life is that no matter who you are, no matter what age you are, if you can discover, you know, who you really are and what you're really meant to do, and you can try to pursue that, that's the answer. And for me, that involved football, but it wasn't, football wasn't my answer, but that was, I had to go through that to get to my next step, to get to my next step. And to have, to now I can resonate with people in a different way because I have that football story which I call a failure and funny, and I'll stop talking here, but when I was writing my book and I talked about it, I had this editor from over in England and I kept writing about how I failed in football and how I failed. She says, what are you talking about? You didn't fail. You were on three different professional teams. Yes, but I (laughs) I didn't make them. (laughs) I got to practice with them, yes. (laughs) And I made, You know, I think when I was in Canada, I made uh, like $5 a day. I made about 35 bucks up there. As a pro. (laughs)
0: Well, that's what I was actually going to ask you. So do you still, have you reframed that? Because, you know, to say, which there's a lot to say here to unpack. And I want to, you know, one I want to hear, we're going to get to, well, let me say this. I don't see it as a failure because I see what you learned to do very young. And you had parents that created opportunity and access. They didn't kill your dream. You learned to follow your excitement. And your excitement was football and sports. Mm-hmm. So you're like, school is a thing I need to do to just make sure grades like to do this. And I, I'm, 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 you know, you're motivated by being good at things and smart. So you're like, okay, I'll get good grades. I'll get what the best I can get and the best of their A's, that's what I get.
1: But best you- As fast as I can get it.
0: Yeah, yeah. What, <laughs> you, yeah. what you did though, was learn to kind of what I often call chase butterflies. Like a two-year-old, three-year-old in a field right, you watch your children play, they're just gonna chase the butterflies like because they enjoy it, you know what I mean? Like, ooh, a butterfly, and they just, because wherever they're, you know, they're in the moment, they're in the now, and they're following what's the best excitement, most passionate thing for them. So sports, for many kids, it is sports, right? But if people kill that dream and take it away because, no, you need to buckle down and become an accountant or an engineer or something that can pay the bills and bring stability, right? Like,
1: Two so now you their right? Two exciting options, accountant and engineer. Mean, it sounds like <laughs> death a stick
0: to me, personally, but... I'm a weird Aquarian, so I couldn't do the same thing
1: with numbers. Yeah, like but, that. If, but if you are that accountant, I mean, there are people that are that's made their passion. Oh, of course, you love it. yeah. I know. I'm frank like with you. them. Yeah. I mean, that's what they should be. They, it's
0: that's so good. much fun to them, yeah. and like you did. They, and they look at me reading physics or neurology, and they're like, "You actually like that book?" I'm like, "I love this book." They're like, "You're so weird, Stephanie." I'm like, "That's okay. You like to do numbers. I mean, I don't understand why you like to do taxes, yeah. but thank God you do." Mm -hmm. Because so people like me don't have to, right? So I believe everybody, like they're they're geniuses. Some people are like, they are born to be executive assistants and they're, but Adele, if she was an executive assistant uh, instead of a singer, that would be a soul crushed before our very Mm -hmm. eyes, right? And the magic of what you're supposed to be. So, Mm -hmm. and so I feel like, you know, you did that. So looking back now or where you are in your present moment, how do you feel about football? like oh. I at it, like you did actually achieve you just didn't get a professional contract i mean you got paid a little bit of money <laughs> I, have
1: three, I have three signed contracts in my yeah. office that i keep and, and i was in the The interesting thing is the longest i was in camp was for about four months uh, or so with the world champion los angeles raiders so i went to the to the oh. very best team in the entire world they had just won the super bowl and i go down and i'm in their camp um all the way through until the The first game, preseason game against the 49ers in San Francisco, 30 minutes from where I lived, where I grew up, where all my friends were going to the game, and I got cut on Thursday before the Saturday game. My friends called me up. Matt, you want to go to the game with us now that you're home? No. (laughs) No, no, Wow. Well, that's pretty epic, though.
0: I mean, I know it would have been better to be signed and to play. Maybe. Yeah, mean, Maybe.
1: Maybe. So to answer your question, I'm fine with it. I'm no longer, it was when I got cut the last time, it's the only time I think I ever was in a depression, ever, and ever since. Um, But I think I I went through that a little bit and then we had the baby. And so snapped out of it, you gotta be a dad, grow up, come on, it's time to man up, let's go. Um, But I, I can remember being on a business trip in Denver, Colorado, And in a nice, beautiful hotel called uh, Boulder, Um, not Boulder, the Brown Palace, great haunted hotel, the Brown Palace in in Denver. And I was having my breakfast and I was reading the newspaper and I was reading about this quarterback who was a little bit younger than me. I was older at the time and how he can't hardly get out of bed. He's got mental problems, you know, because from from a 10 or 15 year career and that game kills you. And I wouldn't have been a top player. I would have been on special teams. I probably would be drooling right now with CTE. So, But I was like maybe almost 40 years old before I finally realized, you know, I think I got lucky. I got to do all of it. I got to be there. I got to be a big shot, you know, when I was signed and all that and have some of that fame and and adoration that I guess is what I was after. But I just wanted to play, really. Um, But I'm healthy. And. If I, if I had played, especially if I had a 10 year career, you know, I'm sure I wouldn't be as healthy as I am today. So. Yeah. Beautiful,
0: um, beautiful perspective. I, and it, I bet that ties into like what I try to teach my patients and hopefully my son will understand and I've been teaching him as well is that everything happens in our highest and best interest. Yep. Even the stuff that hurts. Yep. And okay. so when it's painful, we may not understand You know, we were going through that with the brain infection and with what was going on, I was like, why mom? I said, Bennett, I don't know, but this is your journey. You've called this into your life for a reason. I guarantee you this is happening for your highest and best interest. I guarantee you will overcome this and it will make you a better person and a better man for it. That is for you to figure out. And at one point I was on the beach and he'd gotten so much better. And we went out for a night walk, just he and I on the beach in Charleston. Um, Folly Beach, South Carolina and we were under the moonlight and he wanted to, we were barefoot and he was doing these yoga poses or something. It was like so cool. And then he goes, he goes, mom. And I go, I probably cry saying it. He was, I think he was 10, maybe 11. I don't know, seemed very young to me. I need to write this down. I need to have a notebook. I have to write. I said, what? He goes, I just learned. I'm so grateful to be grateful. I was like, well, he goes, if I didn't get that sick, I would not know how good it feels now to not be sick. I really, I, I have to write all this down. I, it was like, we were walking and he was, he's like, I just feel, he was he really mad. He goes, I feel the power of the earth. Like what you talk about with ground. I feel it. I felt it. I felt it in me. It just, I, I have to write it down. He wrote down a bunch of stuff. He has many, many journals. He keeps, all, he keeps all of them. I have never written what he wrote, but he said, what I just learned out there on that walk with you is so important. I have to write this down so I'll never forget it. And it became, and he said that I'm grateful to be grateful that I can feel this in me again. I know why I got sick.
1: Wisdom from a babe.
0: Yeah. So I look forward to when I can read that. Right. So I'm not saying I've mastered that by any means when things happen sometimes. And I think it's the worst when it happens to your kids. So I wanna fast forward cause I don't think it's anything worse. I, I mean, I remember praying, saying you can kill me if you can get, make my boy healthy. I, I'm so done with this, you know what I mean? Like I, I can't give me cancer, take away my legs. I, I was like, I'm done watching him suffer, okay? He can't go to one more doctor. You know, like this is too much. Um, so let's fast forward to, you know, there's some moment where you said, I've, my first half of my life, and now I'm learning to do it differently. Was there a moment for you, like when that happened, or was it a gradual shift and just a becoming into your manhood?
1: No, it was, probably there was, um, I, I've, I've written about this and, and actually recorded it in one of my, Um, e-courses, there was kind of three big epiphanies in my life. One was that all had to do with this change. And it took maybe three or four years, maybe two years, I guess, in time that passed between these three incidents. And I'll try to give them pretty quick. But the first was my, my first marriage was falling apart. Both the kids finally had left the house and gone to college. And we had just dropped the the younger one off at at University of Colorado in Boulder and went home and thought it was going to empty nesting might actually, you know, save it. And it did just the opposite. I ended up getting attacked and left the house bloody one night and uh, spent, as I was driving down the road, uh, cops were coming back. So she attacked me, bit me, called the cops on me, and so I was sitting in my own driveway in the back of a cop car after I told them the story and saying, man, they've been in there a long time. I hope they believe me. And they came out and they had arrested her and let me go. And so I was in that house all by myself and my marriage was, it was clear that my marriage was ending. That was, that was it. That was the the catalyst. And I saw, I was, I spent the time in my hot tub with my two dogs and just relaxed for three or four days trying to figure out what I was going to do. And Nighttime, we, I sat out in the hot tub. And what well, second night or so, as I was just relaxing, three shooting stars, mm-hmm. M- magnificent. Like I'd never seen two of them were just amazing. And I'm thinking, okay, this is a goosebump time. This is like a big sign that something's about to change. And I, I came out of that weekend and I said, one of the books I love is called Good to Great. It's a business book about, um, I always forget the guy's name, Jim Collins. Jim Collins wrote it. And he wrote about businesses that were good and similar to their to their competition for a long period of time. And then they did something and they became great and outperformed their competition like 10, 10X. And he wrote about characteristics of those, those companies. And he put it in this book, fantastic business book. I'd recommend it to anybody. And I thought, huh. I was forty-six years old, and I'd had a good life. I had no complaints. Even my marriage wasn't good, but I had a really good life. I had a business, good children, and I—I I was good. But I said, "Now I can be great. Mm. Now I can."
0: Today's episode is sponsored by my favorite skincare. People always want to ask me, "What do you put on your skin?" And they expect it to be some fancy, imported, bizarre thing that you can only get exclusively in some high-end shops. Not at all the case. I don't want any endocrine disruptors. I don't want any toxins. I don't want any poisons. It is a plant-based, very unique oil from an Osage Orange called a Pomifera. It's incredibly affordable. No auto ship required. Go to Pomifera.com forward slash Rimka. That's P-O-M-I-F-R-E-R-A dot com forward slash R-I-M-K-A. This is what I've been using on my face for quite a long time. It is my little anti-aging secret weapon.
1: And you can have it too. I can can do or become, it's like my little kid again. I can do anything. Mm -hmm. I can live anywhere. I am free and I'm, I'm the owner of a company and I can literally decide what I'm going to do. And so I set about paying attention to what I was attracted to. And that was that was the first real start of the second half of my life. And then it came into uh, um, um, the second one. I was at the bottom of the Grand Canyon on my second trip, second solo hike down the Grand Canyon, stay overnight at the Phantom Ranch, really cool little, little shack down there with a canteen so you can get dinner and all that, and then hiked out the next day. And as I was going down the canyon, I was that trip, I was reading a book called Halftime. And Bob Buford wrote the book and he talked about people doing what they're supposed to do all the first half of their life, get educated, have, get married, have kids, get your career, blah, 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 blah. You get to midlife, your kids leave, the house is empty, your job's boring, and you just coast living off your first half stuff. Uh-huh. He says, that's what most people do. But some people, when they reach halftime, They reconnect with that thing that lit them up with with their soul, you know, with who they are. And they have this incredibly creative, magnificent second half. And so I thought, that's what I want. And that's actually the name of my, that's how my podcast came to be something significant. It's Bob Buford writes about shifting from ambition to significance in life. So that made a huge impression on me and and really kind of shaped how happy living started to take place. And then when I actually started doing some work of, of thinking about happy living and leaving the trade company that I was in, we actually agreed to sell it. And I'd already moved into the chairmanship. So I was thinking about what to do next. And I'd already started thinking about happy living and had those two experiences in in my rear view while I was still chairman of the board of this company. Um, I started formulating happy living and actually invited my daughter to, to um, to join the company. And I can remember sitting in my office in Camp Verde, Arizona one morning doing my morning reading. And I had one of those feelings, like your son felt, just kind of washed over me while I was having my coffee and doing my reading that happy living is to be my unique gift to the world. And so as in that moment, I decided, okay, I'm gonna stop fighting the sale of our company. I'm gonna go with this. I don't know where it's going, but I'm gonna go with this thing. And and so it's those three things that really have helped me to to rethink, and I have one more, a book that I've been reading every day since I turned 50. Um, And I'm now 60. Uh It's called uh, Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life by Wayne Dyer. And it's a a book about the Tao Te Ching, 81 chapters of how to live your life. And so you you read what uh, Lao Tzu said, short writings, very, very short. And then Dr. Dyer writes an essay about what that means to him. And so I read through that. 81 days, one one chapter a day for the first 81 days said, oh my God, I don't know what the hell I just read. It's so confusing. <laughs> what is it? But I was completely attracted to it. So I said, okay, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna read a chapter every day, the same chapter every day of the week and try to understand it and then try to bring it into my life. So the whole idea of unlearning your life comes right out of one of those chapters. And so okay. I've just learned to put a lot of my feelings in a framework that I might get from from good to great, or I might get from Bob Buford's book, or I might get from the from the Dow book, but then I can use it and reshape it for my own life, which right. is what I'm doing. And with Happy Living, I get to share it with other people, and not to say you should live your life this way, but to say, look, here's what I'm doing. See what resonates with you. So you know, not not a coach, really, just kind of a a philosopher of life, I would guess.
0: Yeah. All right. There's a few things. So there's several things that I want to point out there. And before I, I'm going to backtrack through what, what I just heard, because I'm trying to pick up the gems, right. And like of what I would want, what the advice I want my son to hear in this moment, right. From a 60 year old man, who's very successful, who's a proud parent has done marriage well, poorly, gone through, you know, made ups and downs, made decisions to go from good to great. I love that. I love those book droppings. Um, But before I kind of recap, I want to hear this. What's your definition of a strong man? Or how would you describe a strong man?
1: First of all, all man and unapologetic. Right. <laughs> you know, this this softing down of, of manhood is has to be shunned to push away. So, you know, live your full masculinity, who you and, and be authentic, who you are. And you know, some of us are, are harder charging and some are softer charging. That's fine. The softer charging shouldn't try to be harder charging. You know, the, the more authentic you can be, um you're gonna be the best person you can be. And then the second thing I would say, and I've what I've tried to learn, answering the question, how what's a good parent, or how do you teach your children? And so I'd answer it, your questions, kind of in that same vein. And this came out of a book too. I, I read about um, this American group did a pilgrimage over to India to meet this guru, and they meet the guru, and he's an old man, and he had just fallen and broken his hip. And the doctors say, I don't even know how the guru can see you because he's got to be in such such pain from the hip being fractured and all busted up. And But the guru is just sitting there and just looks completely peaceful and happy. And one of the pilgrims said, well, how can you be so so peaceful and happy when, when your hip is broken? The doctor said, you're in extreme pain. And he said, I am not my body. And the next thing, what grabbed me, <clears throat> my life is my message. Hmm. And I thought, that's that's the way I want to be a teacher. That's the way I want to be a man. That's the way I want to be a parent, is I want to show you with my life, with what I do, mm-hmm. not with what I tell you, not with what, you know, all that's nonsense. What do I do with my life? And so as a man, I want to, you know, carry luggage for my for my wife. Um I want to carry luggage for my daughters. I want to, you know, do I want to open up the jars, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I want to stay strong so I can keep opening up the jars. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, um, I want to do manly things for myself, but also for others. And um so that's that's how I describe it. But the main thing is live your life in such a way that Your actions lift other people, just by the fact that you're doing those actions.
0: That's a really. um, I'm excited to hear that answer because I'll be curious. I'm going to ask all the men to interview that, and I I know there's going to be many, many definitions. And I think that's the beauty of masculinity, of malehood. And I think there's been a strong attack on on boys and boys becoming men and men and what masculinity is. And to the point like, you know, let's speak to football. I played football, I played tackle football. I played with all boys, okay? I also played flag with girls. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I'm good. <laughs> My son, meanwhile, at the local schools, he's always gone to, he's always been to private schools, but uh, two hand touch isn't allowed because that's too much contact. It's too physical, it's aggressive horrible. Okay. I mean, I sit in the world and I, he told me this. He's like, mom, we I said, excuse me. Yeah. I said, what? I mean, I didn't even know what to say. So I look at the strong feminine education has strong feminization, feminization of all children in school. I mean, it's a big problem that all of American education is run. Basically uh, this might be controversial, but it's run by white women. And whatever they're comfortable with is the way it's all going to go down. And I have a lot of friends in education that have explained this to me. And I'm like, they're like, I'm like, why doesn't it change? Like, uh, I'll tell you right why. You know, because that's 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 what's going to control it. And if they're not comfortable with it, it, it's not happening anymore. So the interpretation that it's violence fascinating because like they don't get to do the same things we do. You, you know, that's, just I mean,
1: that's the that. that is a part of being a man is violence it's physical that, yeah that, that's just about as natural as it can be you have to go something to eat it <laughs> I agree that's what I, was, I almost started the question
0: almost started the interview with so Matt tell me like how you hunt and get meat for your family now like I almost might be the question I ask them what do you do I'm like I don't really care you're, you're how do you hunt and provide for your family mm-hmm. so that some people like oh you know I run a company I'm an accountant I'm a but in the end of the day you are hunting for food for your family whether that's that's how we say money and stuff like that. And part of that desire to lift the heavy things and protect is, is still there.
1: Yeah, and, and that's not to say that a woman can't hunt. Certainly women can hunt too. Yeah. But a woman's going to hunt probably differently yeah. because she's going to use her femininity to, to win the day rather than the, you know, the blunt instrument. And so she's probably going to be more clever a hunter. than than the the blunt instrument man. Uh, And that's, it's all beautiful. That's the way it's supposed to work. Yeah. We are, but we're not supposed to be the same.
0: Yeah, so I wanted so when you went through that whole story, right? These these three and four moments of insight that you had, there was lots of things throughout of them. What I was hearing, I was like, oh, he's um, into learning. He's into self-education, he's reading, he's searching, you know, it's like a quest to be better. So there's internal motivation, but it's, you read, you go to other experts and masters, you know, you hire an expert, you know, whether you were taking conferences, you didn't say that, but I'm like, oh, there's a quest to look to people who's better than him. And he's trying to model himself after somebody bigger, better, stronger, more successful in some way. Um, you were doing physical activity You were challenging yourself physically with the hiking, right, in the Grand Canyon. You were immersed in nature at times, right? These are behaviors that I was watching that take commitment, take discipline. um, And all of it does center around you going back to honoring Matt and what the, honoring like the inner child, the little boy as a man to say, wait, what do I actually like, I, was lear- I learned to follow what I was passionate about and what I love to do. And I, I feel like so many men and women don't know how to do that. They equate that to being childish, but mm-hmm. there's a way to be childlike in your adulthood, in your manhood that is not childish. And it's actually the greatest creator energy. And it is an amazing thing to model and teach because I think there's much more, I would much rather have my son Be a a man and and surrounded by men that are living from their hearts, what authentically makes them happy. They're out living with passion because those men don't need to self medicate with drugs or alcohol. They don't need to disempower or beat other women. They don't need to make anybody feel small. They don't need to look for a fight, right? They don't need to. I'm no alpha man, man, I've ever been around is looking to start a fight, get a fight, get physical, intimidate me, hurt me in any way, shape or form. Right. The thing is when, when
1: you, when, when you discover what you're, why you're here, it creates, I've, I've been, I've been trying to, to talk about the difference between earthly energy and spiritual energy that creates a spiritual energy and spiritual energy is infinite. It never runs out. That's why, you know, like when you first, the very first time you fall in love, you have this, you have this so much energy for, to be around that person. You never get tired. But if you are, but earthly energy like money and like physical fitness and mental fitness, that when you use it, it drains and you need to replenish it to fill your tank back up. So when you're living out of spiritual energy, you don't, you don't need stuff. You are just so full and you're full of energy, you're full of engagement. You don't, you don't need to put anybody down, you would never even consider it. You're too busy doing your thing anyways. Um, and that's, to me, that's the magic. And, and when you're in there, what I've just really been starting to, to learn about, that's also when you're at your most creative. So you're at your happiest, you're at your, your absolutely your most creative because if you're an accountant, you can be doing all kinds of creative stuff inside accounting that is bringing you pure joy and changing the world of accounting. And that's, that's it. And to me, it all gets back to living in your spirit and living in your purpose. And when you're doing that, you don't, you don't have things that you don't, that you need. Okay. That's That's the thing.
0: Tell me, I'm going to do, ask this both ways. I want you to tell me as a mom, I got a 15 year old son, Matt, how would you suggest I can, foster that? What should I do to help foster that in my in my son? So, so he doesn't have to go through the first half of his life no, not doing it,
1: right? No, I, I, think, I think the thing is, first of all, live your life as your message. So he sees it. He's, he sees what's going on. Second of all, pay attention to to what he loves and what he doesn't love. And encourage those things that he loves. I heard you talk he loves he loves to hunt. He loves nature, survivalist. Yeah. So okay. So so get foster that. Like send him to those camps. Like my parents sent me to football camp. Keep him busy in the direction of stuff that really he gets excited about. If yeah. he loves to journal, keep him journaling and talk about it and, and, and encourage him to do that. And say, you know, you, you might be able to publish some of this stuff. Maybe you can turn it into a book. So maybe you can turn it into a living. You know, how, maybe you can, maybe you can write about survival skills and combine those two loves of yours. So that's, to me, that's what it is. That's what my parents did. I didn't realize what they were doing. And that's what I do with my, with my kids. I tried, tried to do it with my kids, um, to better success and, and some lesser success, but to encourage the good stuff as much as you can and to get them beyond you, like you're trying to do, right? Like, My parents got me in front of Fred Bolitnikoff. They didn't know they were doing that. Yeah. But that was the outcome of their helping me to to go to those camps and encouraging me to do it and sacrificing so I could do it. So that's, I guess that's the answer. I'd be to model it. Okay. Maybe to share how you're modeling a little bit and, you know, to use words like, gee, when I'm doing things I love, I just feel I feel on fire. (laughs) It's awesome. I lose track of time. This is how your life is supposed to be. And if I can add one more thing because when I first started happy living and I'd sold a company and made made a good amount of money and started happy living and started writing blog posts that you know um, you can do this and you can do that and blah blah, blah. And one of my friends who said what the hell are you doing you know who are you to write about happy living anyways and, and he's, he called me out and he said along these lines that's easy for you to say you've made your money and now you can sit at your lake and you can write these, a you know, little blog post about eating right. But I can't, I've got to go to work. And so I thought, huh, that's a really good point, Richard. Let me, I got to think about that before I respond to you. And I, I finally put it into words. And I call it the want to, have to, or the have to, want to ratio. So all of us have a have to, want to ratio. There's things we have to do, and there's things that we want to do. Let's just suppose that you're you I've lived my life when basically all of the stuff that I did, I had to do. I have been many times, many times I haven't had all the resources I needed to do what I had to do. I had to borrow money even to do what I had to do. So I was in operating out of deficit. But if I can, if I can start to, to flip that ratio from 100% zero to 99 and one, and then maybe 98 and 2% next month, and then 97 and 3% the month after that and the thing I love to do is I love to play music and so I've I've reconnected after all these years with the music that I love to play and so first I wasn't doing any music at all then I started picking up and got it out of the attic and I started playing a little bit and then I actually got a gig at some two-bit bar down the street this is not a is not a real story (laughs) this is a story for the listener um but so you get your gig down at a two-bit uh, bar down the street. And even though you're still doing your janitor work and you're, and you're getting paid and you're taking, you don't like to do this at all, you hate it, but it's paying for your family, which you love. And you get to go and do a gig every Friday night now and play and you're on stage and you're lit up and you just keep flipping that switch. And if it takes you your entire lifetime and you never get to hundred percent, it won't matter because you're on the journey of pursuing what you love. And that's, that's enough. Now your janitor work is more fulfilling because uh-huh. it's helping you to do these other things.
0: Perfect. There's a lot, I, I love that. I love that. Um, I call it following your excitement. And I have always encouraged my patients to actually do what you like, what you wanna do first. And which is the opposite of what a lot of people say. And I've actually had a lot of patients, they'll come to me. It's always a physician or a PhD that says this. Every single time, they think they have like attention deficit or something. They all think, oh, I can, I definitely have ADHD. And I'm like, why do you say that? Do you, well, I'm not diagnosed, but I know I've seen it enough. I said, well, what is it? What is it you want me to do with this EEG and these brain therapies? I want you to help me be able to do all the things that I'm unmotivated to do. I said, well, why are you motivated to do them? Well, I don't like them. I was like, well, why in the world would I want to teach you to do things you don't like to do or want to do? And I mean, so just sometimes even in the question, I'm like, do you guys hear what you're saying to me? And they're like, what? I go, that doesn't sound like a disorder. It sounds like you know what you don't like doing and you know what you like doing. That's right. Why are you spending most of your time doing things you don't like? Right. Right. They would be like, I want to be able to read books longer and I go, Why?
1: Right. Why?
0: It's like saying, because nobody, no, no poet says,
1: I really want you to help me be better at calculus. <laughs> no, and that's, that's a really important point. So, and I've, I've started thinking about, I've been preaching that for ever since I started Happy Living, and it's in my books. It's, and, you know, the, the secret to life doing work you love with people you love and places you love and creating value for others. So it's all about love. And when I started saying, I don't know, a couple of years ago, one of the fastest ways to improve your happiness. It's to stop hanging out with people that make you feel bad and to stop doing things you don't like to do. It's instant. Uh And then I've I've taken it even to another level now is I don't even do something that's good for me if I don't like it. Let me figure out some other way to get that thing I'm after. You know, maybe, Mm -hmm. uh, what was the example I could? Oh, I was doing a 36 hour fast for about 10, every month for about 10 years. And I dreaded it. Every time it came up, I was dreading. It's coming. Oh God, I got to do my my cleansing fast again. Coming up on Tuesday, and so for you know it ruined my week before. And I started saying, I'm just not going to do it anymore. Why am I doing it? Hey, right. now I do an intermittent fast. I eat at twelve and I eat at six thirty. I love it. I feel great, and I don't have any dread. Yeah. So if you're dreading stuff, if you don't like stuff, you might have to do it still, but try to figure out a way to not have to do it. Outsource it. Just stop doing it.
0: Yeah. It makes a difference, like you said, with the have to, the want to. The reality is, like, hey, right now I'm in a I'm a janitor. This is the job. But you, there's a way when you start doing more of what you love to do, you just find these moments. And I tell people something like they would get nervous when I teach them, like, well, am I ever? I, then I have that if I do just that. I'm never going to actually fold the laundry. I go, no, you will. I promise you, if you give your, if you nurture that excitement that what the soul wants, what the heart is telling you spirit is trying to guide you into, into, into that. If you're constantly ignoring it, I promise you at one point in the day or the week, folding the laundry will be the most exciting thing. And you're like, Oh, I really want to do that. Like you're actually going to be, it's going to be shocking how much fun you're going to have holding laundry. When I tell people how much sometimes women, I, I know for me, I will love cleaning my house. You put that music on and it's like, you actually had fun. It was crazy how satisfying and exciting it is to clean. But if I had to do it every day, there are times I'm like, I don't want to do it. I'm not doing it. I don't make myself do it when I'm like, I do not, when I would hate doing it. And it would be like a punishment. So I love that. And I love the idea of even health, a healthy habit can actually bring more uh, unhealthy results, to be honest, because you're bringing that
1: frequency of dread and hate. There's and lots things. of ways to get to a different result. Absolutely. Don't, don't do. All All right. Running, what? Don't, don't do a dogger.
0: Last piece of advice. Yes, ma'am. You get a chance to whisper into my son something, one little piece of information or whatever at a party in my backyard, you're talking to him and you're like, here's the thing, Bennett, you know, I've learned some things in my life. I want to tell you something that's going to make your life easier to help you become, you know, a better man kind of a thing. What
1: would that be? I'll give you two. One of them, this quote was given to me when I went, I'd been cut from the Canadian Football League, and I was getting ready to go to the Raiders. And a friend of mine had a coach in college, an active, he was actively playing college at the time, and his coach had played for the Oilers. And so I said, Mike, you got to get me a meeting with your coach. I want to talk to, you know, what i, I got to figure out what I need to do. And so he got me a meeting with this guy and we had a good conversation. He basically said, Matt, there's nothing I can tell you. Uh, just keep doing what you're doing and you're doing great. And most people, you know, would trade places with you. Right, m- Most college athletes would trade places with you right now. And then when I left, he, he wrote on a piece of paper and he gave me a quote and changed my life. Your day belongs to another's dream. I ask people in my podcast, I ask people, what does that mean to them? Hardly anybody gets the way I took it. That I need to be grateful for what I've achieved because what I'm doing right, the fact that I'm getting ready to go to the Raiders is already somebody else's dream. I'm acting like it's nothing, like it doesn't count unless I get what I want. He says, no, you already have it. And if you're listening to this podcast, that means you're living probably in America, and that means probably your day, as bad as it might possibly be, belongs to many billions of people's yeah. other people's dream. So be grateful, really grateful, which your son's already learned. So then the advice I would give him from me to him is follow your heart because your heart knows where your happiness is. Always follow your heart. This is a mess. He's pointing our to his head, head, everybody, if you're listening, our, our head is a mess, and it's full of <laughs> it's the ego, and it's full of expectations, and all the crap, the cultural crap we've been talking about. Yeah, men should be softer, and different. all this stuff that's made up. Yeah, this in your soul, your your heart, your God purpose, you know, however you want to call it, your spirit is pure, and your head usually wins out, and that's the shame.
0: Yeah. Follow your it's heart Tough age. It's a tough age. So you have kids. This will be the end. Like how many kids do you have? Four. All right. So you had two for the first marriage <laughs>
1: Yeah.
0: and two right now. And so the two are younger, right? They're uh, 15, we're,
1: 15, we're, 15, 17, 31 and 30.
0: Okay. 30, yeah. You're getting, you're getting two chances at this whole thing. So you got teenagers, right? So here's the thing, you know, this is a really interesting time. These teenage years, this might be, this will be the last one, I guess, you know, what matters so much is fitting in Mm -hmm. and being with their, with the, with the popular culture, with the other kids, like he's much more concerned with that now than he ever was. He was always this very unique, loved being different. Actually, he loved that he was an outlier in many ways and Mm -hmm. was very into different stuff. Now, it's coming back to kind of bite me in the butt a little bit. As a mother, I kind of hate it that he's, uh, and I know it's normal. I know it's normal developmental psychology and it's still kind of eating me alive, Matt. And I'm waiting for that moment of like, oh man, can you go back to like really not caring when anybody thinks about anything? So yeah. he's getting, he's getting some of this normal societal indoctrination yeah. and people say things like, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I would say always like, like your parents kind of, I like that phrase. I'm actually going to do more of that. Like you can be anything if you work hard enough. We've always kind of said that, but I'm like, did I always say it that directly? Um, where then people would say he played the violin for many years. He was switching the guitar. He used to want to be a singer and a musician. And then sometimes when he would tell people every now and then there would be this horrific adult response of, oh man, that's like really a hard, I mean, like they would say something negative about, well, you better have a backup plan. You know, nobody makes any money doing that. Like right. something so limiting and horrible to me, I'm almost like, I want to punch him in the face. Like you're abusive. Did you just say that to him? I'm like, uh, first of all, he can do anything he wants. He'll make all the money he wants. I don't know what you're talking about. Do you know how much money Adele made last year? They sure, sure. seem to make a lot of money to me. Right. I would be so upset that you just tried to crush a child's dream right all the time all the time so now you know he wants to just go to school he wants to right so there's lots of that kind of limiting thinking and talking about college and fitting you know and i'm in the world of honey you don't need to go to college at all i'm going to tell you if that's what you want to do i'll support that fully but don't think for one minute you can't start a company or make multi-millions not doing any of that like you don't have to or not make multi-millions yeah I mean, well, that, he's very into it. He's already in the stock market. He's like, mom, great. I'm
1: at $10,000. <laughs> great. That's great. Yeah. Um, so so I think the, you know, first of all, it's really difficult because they're kids and their brains don't work properly. And, you know, they're kids and they're hormones. So, so you know, we have, um, when my first daughter was born, we had this great pediatrician in, in Walnut Creek. Dr. Hanson, and we'd bring the kid in and he'd you know look the kid over and set the kid aside. And Then he'd sit down and lecture her mother and me about this stage of this child's life, about how we should be parents to this baby, about what to do. And I mean, full life stuff. He was great. And uh, uh, probably about four years or five years of age, um, we were still going to this guy. And his advice was, okay, mom and dad, you're just about done (laughs) your influence over this child is just about over and you can cheer and you can do all this other kind of stuff but their outside world starts to take over in in terms of the major influence and so then i think you can just be there to to catch them and to love them you mentioned earlier um uh, therapeutic boarding school we had problems it was not positive it wasn't you know, fancy writ school, it was fix this kid's kind of a thing. Um, and what you can do is just just support them. Keep your heart open. That's, that's why I did the whole time. And, you know, we forgive you, um, but you, that behavior can't happen here. And just stay as loving as you possibly can. And as much as possible, try to, to convey to the child. Look, you have to we have a conscience. And you have a conscience and when you're doing something if you're fitting in with your friends and that really feels good to you that's great but if it doesn't if you're getting these tinges that you you know this isn't right for you listen to those Mm -hmm. try to really listen to your conscience that's getting you out of your head getting you into your heart again it's the same story but said a different way and ultimately that's it i was on a podcast and the lady said okay mr happy living what do you say to somebody they really love playing video games I said, well, if they really love playing video games and and they want to become the best in the world at it, first of all, they could be a pro. Second yeah. of all, they could design games. Third of all, they might design someday in the future a positive video game that actually lifts the world up. And if that, if that kid did everything they were supposed to do, like I did, to get as much time in front of the video game like I did to play sports, and they took care of all their business and they did their chores, that could be a great path for that child. Yeah. So I think that the thing is, they know, we all know when we're doing stuff that makes us feel bad yeah. and we lie to ourselves. If we can just teach them not to lie to themselves and just be honest with themselves. And he comes back and says, you know what? I want to live in the woods and I want to live off off the grid and I don't need money because my currency is with these weapons and with my cunning and, and I'm going to be happy out there. And he is genuinely happy out there. That's great. That's a great life.
0: I agree. I actually love that. I like that final way you kind of said that because sometimes saying, you know, saying that to anybody is nebulous of how to get out of your head and live in your heart. Like, you're like, what are you talking about? Right. But I, I think the idea of saying it with a conscience and ex- that was a beautiful example. And I actually look forward to either letting him listen or kind of at some point, you know, stealing it from you and using that advice to talk about that because we have talked about things in terms of. You know, honey, these are the years, like it, it. This, these are the years, and so if any women are listening to this with kids and they're teenagers and they're boys, right? This is about raising boys into strong men. You got these 12, 13, 14, 15 and some year olds. You have got to start to let go. No. You cannot hover and oh overprotect and coddle, and it is a frightening notion. I am terrified to know the fact that this is three times more likely to have severe injury or death in their teenage years, right? From 12 to 24. It is a dangerous time. My son just got his permit, right? You're dealing right, probably with this driving stuff. And I'm like, he's like, always asking for me to trust a mom. I need you to trust me, mom. I need you to trust me. I'm like, I get it, honey. I do, but I don't trust the other people, right? Uh-huh. So it's, it's this balance of how to do that. I'm like, I... We will be trusting you with cars and trusting you to make decisions. And kind of had some of those conversations about the drugs and the alcohol. And I've also with, and trauma and stress. Like now I've got to deal with some of your friends might start cutting. He's already had a couple of friends try to kill themselves. Yeah. You know, there's stress and anxiety. Kids are dealing with nice. epic proportions of mental health distress that it's, it's overwhelming. So mutilation, I have to have conversations and I've had conversations like, please, honey, There are things that only your friends are going to talk about. I don't need to know all the things. And then there are times that they may tell you, I'm going to need you to tell me because if this girl is hurting herself or a boy is hurting herself or a parent or an uncle or a teacher or a coach is hurting one of them and ever molesting sexual, any of that, you have got to tell somebody you have to know that you cannot handle that. These are really interesting conversations to have. He's like, oh, mom, I know. I said, no, you may or may not know because I guarantee you it's gonna happen. You're gonna know kids. I, I went through it. I knew a girl whose father was raping her all through high school and then we had to handle it to save her. And it is hard. So I want you to be the kind of kid that they'll feel safe enough to tell. Because they, you know, I mean, he was like, so just sometimes I have to tell him these things. And it's a tough thing. We're like, I'm trying to let you go. Yeah. I gotta let you make your own decisions. And you also need to know if anybody's drinking, you better call me. I will not get you in trouble. <laughs> like I will, you know, like it's a fine balance of, yeah, honey, but you, you can't ever take like a weed joint or a vape off of anybody because I don't know what's going to be in there and it might kill you. Correct. So there's these bizarre things that it's such a scary time, but moms, oh man, we do have to let it go because I've seen it too much where they will resent you. So and then
1: democratic oath, oh, first do no harm. So when you're hovering, you are actually doing harm. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, I had a friend, they play, played college football with him. Uh, and he ended up being, he was the head coach at the University of Colorado for a while. He's now the head coach back at, at my the school we played at, uh, our alumni. At uh, UC Davis, but when Dan was in Colorado, it was his it wasn't his first job. But anyway,s he he was it was his first big um, big college job. And at one point, he's he had parents um, coming to team meetings and complaining that their children weren't getting enough summer vacation. <laughs> college football players, moms and dads complaining to the coach, yeah. and he said, "You know, this isn't." This isn't high school people. He's, he's got a famous online rant for, for how he handled this. Yeah. But that's, this is, it's gotten so bad. They're following their kids into college and into the military recruitment. You know, oh. it's time to be, to let your kids go. Yeah. When they're 18 years old, they got to go yeah. and you got to let them go. And you, if you're, if you're smothering them when they're home, I mean, you, you're just, it's, it's just creating a mess. And I know it's hard to, to let him go by conversation with my with my daughter. She hasn't got her license yet. She's about to turn 18. And she's nervous and her mom's nervous and we're all nervous. Um, I said, you know, you could be going to the military and training to drive a tank. It's right time that you get your driver's license. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so we, we don't do our kids any certain so we've 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 reduced the the um, We've infantized our children. Yeah. Right? It used to be, you go back when my parents, when our parents were growing up, you were men and women when you were 18. Yeah. Right? You weren't children. Yeah. We say we, sent, we, sent, like, our, we sent our kids off to military. No, we didn't. We sent our young men and women off to the military. Yeah. My and good friend, wow.
0: he's, he's in his 70s and he was a, a Marine drill sergeant at, at one point. And then he became a salesman, took care of his kids, and all the kinds of things. And, He's in that kind of thing watching. We used to teach courses together at gym, and he would kind of like, oh my God, what is going on? Because let me tell you, like when I w- grew up <laughs> at 18, you are out the door. You better get a job at a factory or join the military or work it out. But you can't stay here and keep eating my food and like you're grown, get, figure it out. And he was really struggling watching so many men in these courses, you know, doing the childlike way of saying I want to follow my dream at 45 but then their wives were supporting them they weren't bringing income anymore they were having affairs they were doing just ir- immature rational things he's like okay that's all fine and good, but you got to also be res- a responsible adult. Like what, what is this thing that's going on right now? And he would, he was very frustrated by watching it. He's like, and the whole role, he's like, of course I, he goes, I married a, an amazing woman. And I think you guys, you should be doctors and lawyers and engineers and anything you want to be, but you shouldn't have to actually be the man in the house as well. Like what is going on here? That's a lot of pressure. I mean, he's like, you guys are expected to do everything. It's not right. And I was like, yeah, we're tired. We are actually real tired of doing
1: all the things, right? Uh, closing closing out on, with the kids and, and advice. That's the one thing I did with, with both sets of mine, that two things I said to them. We take care of you till you're 18, then you're out. You know, and we'll support you. If you go to college, we'll support you. But 18, that's that's our job with you. And then you're either a college kid or you're, or you're working or you're doing something, but you're not living here. The second thing I taught them the whole time I've been rich, and I've been poor, and I've been everywhere in between, but I've always said to them, this is your mother and my lifestyle. This is not your lifestyle. Yeah. <laughs> you just get to live in it while you're here, yeah. but you're about to be poor. When you turn 18, you're going to be a poor person, <laughs> and so don't cling to this, uh, and I think if you if you set that stage early, it makes it It's easier when they do turn 18 and it also teaches them that, hey, if I'm 17 or 16, I better start getting my stuff together because dad says I'm out and I only got two years.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I do love that. And I went to school, I grew up very, very poor and I went to college, with a lot of very, very wealthy kids. And you could see the difference of the parents, I guess. And I've always tried to figure out what did their parents do? And my best friend, Katie said, she's like, what? Her Father was head of radiology at a hospital and BMWs everywhere and this and all the money and all the things. Lived an amazing life, always the house in the Cayman Islands and all, all the way they lived, right? But she was all. I would say sometimes she would complain about the money or the this and be stressed. And I was like, "Hey, what is your problem? Like, I'm over here. I'm the welfare kid, right? I'm trying to like scrape together food stamps to get beer or whatever." And she, she's got an allowance. I'm like, "Why are you always so stressed out about this?" She's like, "What?" She's like, "I don't have any money." It's like you're rich. She's like, "I'm not rich. My parents are rich." (laughs) That's good parenting. I was like, really, like it hit me. And she's like, I if I don't because she was failing and she couldn't, there's no way she could go to medical school at that point. She's like, I'm screwed, I'm losing my scholarship, my dad's gonna take me out, you know. And I was like, Oh, it was really interesting to me, also because I what the how I thought of the rich kids, right? Now there were some that were super bratty and they were very entitled. And nobody, I mean, I'm like, you're disgusting, and you could tell they were very, very, very entitled. That's really great advice because sometimes I'm I want my son to know he's mm-hmm. going to be okay. I'm like, "Oh, babe, like it's fine." Because I don't want him to live in the scarcity that I grew up in, and he doesn't have to live in that scarcity and make decisions the way I had to make decisions on not always totally following my heart. I was trying to be as smart as I could to get out of the ghetto, mm-hmm. you know? So I needed the scholarships, I needed the grades, I needed but I did I did do what I wanted to do. I played all the sports and did all the stuff I I was really passionate about. It made me happy. Um, but sometimes I feel like I might have made some choices that were based upon what was logical
1: mm-hmm. and the
0: smart way to do it. And I don't want him to do that at all. I want him to know, like, you know, but I but I try to be like, now I I've, I've, have I've learned recently. I'm like, oh, right. He's going to be okay no matter what because he's smart yeah. and competent. And I need to keep encouraging that.
1: It's really good to have an experience of, not having stuff right my son has his him on the beach he didn't have his health now he has it now he under now he can appreciate it yeah so if if you if you just are always rich and you always have whatever you want you you can't appreciate it yeah if you live in your parents lifestyle and all of a sudden you're a poor kid in college well you should be grateful that you're actually in college right right? a lot of kids can't go to college yeah Yeah. anyways
0: Yeah. Awesome, Matt. Well, it was awesome to talk to you. Thank you for the advice. I can't wait to like actually get this transcribed. I mean, I'd start transcribing it so I can actually see the written word. I do better with that. Um, Just drop down, tell everybody where they can find you, your main website. We'll put everything in the notes description, but so people listening who, if they resonate with you and what you had to say, you guys, this is who he is as a person. I was getting some advice about, you know, what he brings to the world, but this is an example of what I think men who are strong and, and bringing good into the world and that doesn't mean it's about violence or overtaking or competition i think the real strength is an understanding yeah i'll compete when i need to and violence is our nature and i like to hunt and knock stuff around but it all comes also the, the power of love and community and and them so how to get a hold of you
1: so uh just one quick story to about getting hold of me when we when i first pitched the business to my daughter and my wife for happy living i was i was describing more like a crossfit for happiness like you can be happy and you just have to be <laughs> disciplined and rigorous and i scared the hell out of them and they looked at me and so you're scaring us you're only going to have two people that'll follow you and they'll both be like you and so we they talked me off the ledge and they came up with my wife did actually she says what about happy living and i said huh happy living that sounds great and i looked at my daughter i says keileen is that url available she put her phone dad i got good news and i got bad news the good news is it's available the bad news is it cost $10,000. Wow. I looked at my wife and I said, what do you think, honey? And she said, it's the perfect name. So we bought it right then and there. I got my credit card. We bought Happy Living. So if you're listening, you want to connect with me, please use Happy Living. It's expensive real estate. <laughs> www.happyliving.com has everything you'll want to know wow. about me
0: perfect uh <laughs> why Now you paid 10 grand for it that is, grand. that is i love that it's actually moving energy into what you want money is just energy right it's a transmission of the energy you put into stuff and you said i'm going to put this energy this is how much energy so it is bound to be uh bigger and successful and it's it's full of things you guys it's like a little cornucopia of of information and opportunities um for living a happier life whether that's you're going to listen to the podcast whether you're going to read his book whether you want to go on some of his retreats so but it's all focused around that it's all little juicy nuggets i kind of was perusing and reading some things so um i i know when i spent time with you i felt happier for doing it i I appreciate it
1: it. yeah one last thing for the strong man podcast. podcast yep your son tell me his name again bennett bennett so I would like you to think about and maybe talk with your other guests about um, maybe a first season reunion of your strong men and Bennett at the Happy Living House. Oh, what a cool idea. Wouldn't that be fun? And he could, meet us be and we could play fun. shuffleboard and we could talk and, and do I'll something. have to leave <laughs> while you guys yeah. I, I can
0: grunt and scratch your balls and make sure he knows how to sit on toilet seats. We can do all kinds of <laughs> whatever he he's going to kill know. me for saying, I can never <laughs> let him hear this now. I can never talk about that. Anyways, think about your oval. But that's, thank you. That's a cool idea. All right. I would literally be there to be like, Hey, peace out. I'm going to go now. <laughs> I'm going to go get a massage. Y'all mm. do what you, I'm a big fan of that. And I started like, yeah, men need to go off and be men. Scratch your balls beat your chest, do what you got to do. I'm out. Like I mean, there's a place I'm not just like you don't need to be with me and all my things at times. I got my period, my baby giving go away. Uh, This is women's space. There's your men's space. And I'm a fan of that. And um, I'm trying to foster and enable that more for him. All right. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye.